0: He's the most powerful man in the West, although he was never in a gunfight, never wore a badge or punched cattle. He did something much greater. He created the culture, the culture of the American West. Today's cowboy culture was in large part created by one man, an author nonetheless, perhaps the most influential American author ever to pick up a pen. Now, I don't care what literary critics and scholars have to say, but when foreigners think of Americans, they often think of the cowboy, rugged, just, a people with dignity. These qualities were made famous to the modern world through the characters of this author. I caught up with his son, who is also an accomplished writer, filmmaker, publisher, and producer, and the now self-described caretaker of his father's literary empire. Bo has taken the proverbial reins and is doing his best to ensure the sunsets are still rideable and the dusty trails of his father's masterpieces remain relevant. Now, sure, Bo is watching over his father's literary legacy, but more importantly, he's become the guardian of the culture, the culture his father created, and in many ways, a culture that has no idea of the impact his father is had upon it. And that makes Louis L'Amour history worth saving.
1: I'm more the, the mechanic than the historian of, of Western literature, although I certainly you know, know a lot about the past of Western literature. Um, Dad's magic wasn't that he was a uh, Uh, a writer in the the classic years of the Western which might a lot of people would think maybe the 1950s Um, although he was writing at that time his popularity um, took the Western from kind of square or establishment culture and into counterculture and uh, so he kind of transitioned the Western uh, into a place where it was maybe um, I don't know, just acceptable and interesting to nearly everybody.
0: It wasn't until the 1960s when the hippie met the cowboy and realized they were friends that Louis L'Amour's career reached its full gallop. His success as a powerhouse writer didn't happen early on like most people think. But that's what makes Louis L'Amour so interesting. He didn't write about strangers. He was a living bridge, between the modern world and the American West. He went out of his way early on to get to know the old-timers, the outlaws, in-laws, and cowpokes he wrote about, he knew. He knew the life aboard the tramp steamers of Asia because he'd been a crew member, and he knew the hobos because he'd once ridden the rails himself while looking for work. Along the way, he'd lived alone watching over gold mines, even took a turn in the ring as a prize fighter, But most of all, he wanted to write. And write he did, especially before World War II. His first attempt at a novel is a book called No Traveler Returns. It debuted in November of 2018, some 81 years after he started it, and tells the story of a crew sailing the high seas in the early 1900s, hauling a ship of volatile chemicals across the Pacific to the remote areas of Asia. Beau breathed new life into his dad's first project and completed the manuscript, making the lost treasure now a finished work, and it's like nothing else Louis L'Amour ever wrote. It's incredibly complex, an ambitious book even by today's standards. It makes you wonder, what if? What if World War II hadn't come? Louis L'Amour's writing career might have taken a different turn.
1: The, you know, the amazing thing was the vision that he had of it. I mean, he wrote this novel... Um, between 1937 and 1942 so he wrote it in pieces with uh, a lot of short stories written in between because he could make money off of the short stories Um, he did not write another novel until 1949 and then he didn't make because
0: he was winning a world war at that point
1: Uh, there was a world war in there but then after that there was a a very hard kind of slog through the late days of the pulp magazine business. And, um, and then there was a, uh, definitely a period of kind of picking himself up by his bootstraps, writing Westerns in a very competitive marketplace. It's a very, very different book. So I found it really challenging in that way. But I think the things that I, that I like about it the most are, it's a serious window into my dad's past. Okay, so there's a lot of um, autobiographical details in it, whether they're actual details from his life or just the sense of what he was thinking about at the at the time, and the sense of who he was at the time. Um, so I find that interesting because it's a it's an interesting personal view of him. It's also technically a very very sophisticated book. It was. You know, as close as we know to my dad's first novel, and young novelists tend to write things that are uh, kind of ambitious and intellectual and intricate, and it is all of those things.
0: So after World War II, Louis L'Amour's writing career was all but over. He was starting again from scratch. The companies he wrote for were nearly out of business. The pulp market had dried up, and the people he'd known in the publishing game were out of it.
1: Dad was, uh, in a lot of ways, the quintessential American man. I mean, he was um, a very masculine guy. Um, he was a very, he was a very gentle, you know, kind of wonderful, wonderful father. Um, he was a, you know, definitely a self-made man. In in many ways, and and he was a guy who was just focused like a laser on what he wanted to do and the vision he had for himself. And if you look carefully at his career, one of the things that's important for people to recognize is he really. I mean, people think you know they project the things they know about him, best-selling writer, all this kind of stuff, on his entire career. And that couldn't be further from the truth. He only really became a serious success in the last decade of his life.
0: But that laser focus paid off when the discovery of a tiny strip of glue was made. In many ways, the West wasn't won by the Winchester. It was won when an effective and efficient way was developed to bind paperback books. Just holding it in my hand here, this little... uh, Line of glue saved your dad's life, did it not? The invention of the uh, invention of the paperback. I mean, it changed everything for your family.
1: You're very you're very astute to note the glue. That's that's a, a huge part of paperback. Of it was paperback. The, it was the
0: mystery of how to how to print an affordable book that didn't yeah. need to be you know professionally bound. I mean, how did? That's the secret.
1: There were ex- actually experiments uh, to try and make that work with the glue and the binding and everything else for. Uh, a couple of decades prior to the the time when they actually got something that worked but Yeah, um paperbacks were a mixed blessing in my dad's life I mean he definitely made his fortune off of them and he is I mean if you want to talk about the quintessential something My dad was a quintessential paperback writer. He was the guy that paper that paperbacks made his career and and he may have uh, contributed enormously to the paperback format but, um, but to a great extent, they put the pulp magazines out of business. And the coming of the paperback forced my dad to evolve, whether he liked it or not, from a guy who could knock out a bunch of pulp stories and have just enough money to feed himself because of that into a guy that finally started making serious money um, writing paperbacks, but you know, he had to switch because the pulps went out of business. It's also a true thing that in the late part of his Pulp Magazine career, he got paid between one and two cents a word for a Pulp Magazine story. When he started writing paperbacks, he made one to two cents a book. So obviously a lot less. big difference. But no upper limit as many books as i mean when that when he had written when he had finished writing that you know uh let's say 10,000 word uh pulp magazine story you know that's all he's going to get paid for but with the book he could write a book you know books he wrote in the early 1950s are still selling and uh and thank god we're making more than 2 cents a book but um in the early days there wasn't an awful lot of money in paperbacks
0: To say the paperback industry made Louis L'Amour might be better stated, Louis L'Amour made the paperback industry. Publishers didn't think middle-class Americans would read, and the upper class certainly wouldn't read cheaply bound paperbacks. But they did. They really did. And Louis never stopped answering the call of his readers. He became a machine. A story machine. He has written enough for two lifetimes, both his own and now yours. I want to talk about this a little bit because this is something that you were literally born to do, but I would imagine that there, as a young man, there had to have been uh, some struggle with that to continue on and, and finish a book, not only like this, but Lost Treasures and everything else. How, how, did, you, how did you become okay with being Bo Lamore and being an author uh, alongside your dad? How did that walk me through that?
1: I kind of grew into it. I'm not sure I ever really. I'm not sure I ever really planned it. Um, I started out. Uh, I started out working in the motion picture business, and I did that on and off, doing all all kinds of stuff from driving trucks and uh, conforming soundtracks in the middle of the night. I won't go into the technical description of what that is, but uh, <clears throat> it's basically one of, one of the completely mindless jobs that has to be done to get a movie ready to go and. And, and after kind of starting and stopping and things like that, I ended up, the, the last thing I did was a cable movie, and, and I wrote the script and produced it. So I sort of...
0: Which one was that? That was uh, a diamond the Diamond of Giroud. The Diamond of Giroux, the diamond of Drew, yeah. And so, Which, by the way, I tried to download, so I'd have it in my, my arsenal of tricks here. Uh-huh. And it was only available on the airline in Hindi or something else, and it was converted from YouTube. So you need to look into that because they're stealing it. Somehow,
1: it's very popular in India. Well, it's apparently so. You no, know, it's true. It's very popular in India, and yeah. it's very popular in Turkey and Spain. Well, there you go. I mean, we're yeah. you know we're seventeen years later, so yeah. you 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 know you know who likes it by who's still playing it right. at that point. Yeah, it's funny. I get about uh, I get about one hundred and seventy dollars a year from uh, from those markets, but uh, so anyway, I uh, I started working in um in film and probably midway through my the, my film career I had been working for a production company and we just in in the year that I worked there i I think we did something like 16 or 17 movies and I was just uh, I'm not really credited on any of them I was just production company staff so I, I did everything on all of those films I mean I just I worked on one and I worked on another I did different kinds of jobs and I got done with that um, with that job and I just I kind of came home and I went face first into bed and I slept for a week because this typical movie business is you know 14 16 hours a day and um, I didn't really know how to get myself energized to restart and find another job And a couple of weeks later, my dad said that uh, he had some technical issues that he wanted me to look into uh, in the Louis Lemoore audio dramas. So back in those days, we were doing our audio publishing program was an awful lot like old time radio shows. Yeah,
0: the Foley artist and everything and the stuff that I've heard. It's excellent. Excellent work.
1: And so uh, he 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 wanted me to get in there and supervise that, and he just said, you know, you're the guy that knows acting and directing and the technical side of these things, because I'd been uh, I'd been a production mixer on a couple of uh, or location mixer on a couple of movies, and um, and so I started doing that, and then that led to adapting and supervising other writers. Adapting the scripts to those things. So it's a lot like doing a movie script. People look at it and they kind of go, oh, it's the same thing as the short story. But no, it's not. Those stories are completely adapted, just like a film would be. And so I started sneaking in to working with his work in ways that were uh, kind of painless and in ways where I didn't even recognize that I was sort of training up to eventually you know to eventually do this kind of thing and then you know eventually my dad passed away and i in looking at what my mom and i were confronted with when that when that happened so she runs the financial side of the business and i kind of run the aesthetic side of the business or the you know artistic side of the business and uh i just had to you know, I had to figure out what the future was. And um, without my dad to write a new book every year, uh, or several new books every year, um, one of the things that I wanted to do was was kind of revamp the entire program. And, uh, you know, new covers, new copy, new ways of thinking about Louis L'Amour and presenting Louis L'Amour to the public. And so I did a tremendous amount of work Um, with Bantam Books now, now Random House. And, uh, and I was, you know, I was in New York six or eight times a year for, for many years working, working with them. And uh, so I don't necessarily consider myself to be a, a writer. I, I kind of think of myself as just somebody who's in the publishing business and does what's necessary. And well, and that, and this comes back to a a line that the so the the motion picture production company that I got so exhausted working for the the gentleman that ran that company when I first came to work there, and he said, "You know you're going to be an assistant producer, assistant to the producer, eventually producer." And uh, you know, I said, well, what exactly tell me what does a producer do?" And he kind of looked at me for a second and he said, Whatever it takes, okay. <laughs> which
0: is which is so true, and people don't realize. It. I mean, this is not a glamorous business. It's it's a business where you do what you have to do,
1: right? And that can be literally anything. I mean, the, in a, in the motion picture business, the producer is the one guy who can kind of invade um, the space of every union on the set and kind of get and get away with it. The producer does whatever is necessary, and that's the attitude that I have taken in managing my dad's career and managing my dad's estate and materials is whatever has to be done um i'll do it i'll do audios i'll do movies i'll do a graphic novel i'll you know rewrite an old novel um this work that i did on no traveler returns is not um new to me i started uh editing revising, rewriting, again, whatever it takes, depending on the requirements of the story. Um, Back in the days, not very long after my dad passed away, when we were releasing um, uh, books of short stories, many of which had never been published. And so I worked on quite a few of those short stories, uh, sometimes doing more, sometimes doing less. Uh, it's, It's a strange thing that My goal is always to allow the story to become everything that I think he would have wanted it to be. Sometimes you hit a short story that's not so great and that it's kind of clear he didn't really have incredible goals for. And in those cases, it's often pretty simple. But when you hit a story that he obviously was lavishing kind of ambitious Thoughts on, it's like those stories are the ones where you really got to go crazy and just do everything. You know, I did everything I could to live up to, uh, to make the story live up to all of the expectations that he obviously had for it. And um, and so I don't know. What what I'm doing is something that uh, has been sneaking up on me very slowly for a very long time.
0: I like the way that you described it too. Just you do whatever it takes. Yeah. Did you ever see yourself as an author? Was that something you you aspired to be, an old man with a pipe and a <laughs> wing-backed leather chair somewhere? You know, I mean, is that is that the life that you wanted?
1: I have I have no idea. I've just kind of I've gone kind of I I have not had that sort of laser vision of what I want to do and what I want to be with my life. But you know, I I, I guess I, I am what I am. I mean, I'm fifty-seven years old, so I'm I'm well into. Um, my life and I'm just uh, you know uh, I'm the guy that makes it work and when I'm done making Louis L'Amour work yeah I definitely might uh, write some things and there may be some other things that I would like to do so uh, we'll see what happens
0: When you write enough for two lifetimes the cutting room floor fills up fast and Beau L'Amour has compiled some of these what-might-have-beens into a series appropriately titled Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures. General Crook will be here within a month with a large force. That'll be the end of the Apache. Yeah. End of a way of life. Too bad.
1: It's a good way. Wagons forward! Yo! Yeah! So Louis Lemoore's Lost Treasures is a is a series of materials that has uh, that has three different pieces to it. Uh, so the first the first piece is uh, the Lost Treasures postscripts to existing novels, material that my dad wrote throughout throughout his career, and uh, things that have long been loved by fans and have been published for a very long time and in those i go in and i write an afterword or a postscript to those to those stories that kind of tells the story behind the story the you know the the travails of attempting to write it sometimes it will be about dad doing uh the research on a story. Sometimes it'll be the interesting story of the movie that was made by the story. Just whatever I know about that story, uh, I will put in a Lost Treasures postscript. And I think about 40 of the books will probably have that. Then there is Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures, Volumes 1 and 2. And this is, to a great extent, unfinished material. It's probably about, uh, probably a fifth of it is finished in the, in that there are movie treatments. So a treatment is a, um, uh, is a description of a story without being a story, the story itself. And, um, but there's a lot of unfinished material there. And with each one of those unfinished things, I try to let the reader know how it would be finished, what my dad was trying to accomplish, just basically what was going on with that particular story and how it might've concluded and what role it played in his career. The third kind of and final element of that is these a novel or two that were unfinished uh, during Dad's life that I will finish, unlike the unfinished stuff that I comment on in Louis L'Amour's Last Treasures Volumes 1 and 2. This would be stuff that I would choose to, to finish and do uh, as close to the sort of job that I think he had in mind as I possibly can and no traveler returns is one of those.
0: Told me on the way over here that you're in the business of fiction, which I think is great. You don't really care where the story comes from as long as it's a good story. Your dad wrote some stuff, some of his early stuff about aviation. I mean, and, and whether it was tramp steamers or airplanes or he seemed to be fascinated, uh, by where we were in the world. And at that point, everything was new and exciting. So, um, and and that's some of that's in Lost Treasures, but I, I what 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 do you see for yourself down the road? What what is new and exciting for Beau Lamore?
1: Um, I hope to do one more Lost Treasures book, an- another another novel, and we'll have to see what the publisher thinks of that. And uh after that I have uh you know, I have some things that I'd like to write, but I don't really like to get into it too much because my dad's Fans then tend to say, well, you said you were going to do this and, you know, you haven't done it. You know, it's been 12 years. But this wouldn't
0: be your dad's stuff. This would be your stuff. And, you know, here we are in a world now where you and I are experiencing uh, uh, space exploration at, at, a, at a, in, a, in a level and in a, in a personal level uh, that they could only imagine back then. I mean, there's so many new things with science and, uh, and everything else that, that's coming out that I, I, I would think your dad would be fascinated with. Right now, I mean, the world of digital publishing alone would have been probably enough to give him another 50 years had his body held out. But but here you are, you're the only guy for the job, Bo. I mean, you're you are our our Jack Ryan of the day when it comes to ah! when it comes to this stuff. So what's, what what are you what are you thinking right now?
1: I I I I'm going to not say and not commit myself. Nothing,
0: today. nothing on the red carpet here.
1: Uh, no, there's, I have yeah. plenty of things on the red carpet, yeah. but I, I yeah, nothing, nothing I want to nothing I want to cop to because then people start saying, "Ah, but you said you yeah. were going to do this."
0: And what do you when it's all said and done? What do you, What do you want folks to remember about Bolamore?
1: Oh, I have no idea. I did a good job, you know. I mean, I'm I'm. Uh, my dad was a guy who wanted to be a celebrity. He he wanted his name to be front and center. I couldn't care less about that kind of thing. Basically, what I, what I want to do is I, I want to make sure that the things that I work on are as tight and professional and buttoned up a set of projects as I can possibly make them.
0: One of the rules, perhaps the biggest, is that Beau won't finish anything his father started where the trajectory of the story isn't clear. But if you're a longtime Louis L'Amour fan, you're probably wondering, like me, how to tell where Louis left off and Beau begins. And in full disclosure, my grandmother was the Louis L'Amour super fan in the family. She'd read everything. It wasn't until several years ago that I started picking up the stories. Several friends and I have been really enjoying them. But after meeting Bo, I went back and noticed most of my favorite works, Monument Rock, The Education of a Wandering Man, these were works that Bo had had a hand in finishing. Which made me wonder, am I a Bo fan or a Louis fan? For now, I think I'll just stick with Lamore fan. You said it was something that everybody asked in the car. When we were, I, was, I want to touch just briefly on this. That it, I, I told you, it's really hard to tell where where you pick up and where your dad leaves off. And I think that you've you figured that out. And you said you're really good at embodying and writing in several of his voices. But but there was one in particular you haven't figured out yet.
1: Right. So my dad had several writing styles, and the final style in his life, the the one the style that he wrote in. Um, Probably starting in the late seventies and then throughout the nineteen eighties is I could probably do it to a certain extent, but it's the most it's the most difficult for me, and it's a little more kind of flowery and verbose uh, verbose style. I mean, I, I think actually the best style that my dad ever wrote in was uh, his early to mid nineteen sixties style I mean he didn't he didn't make decisions like I'm gonna write like this it, it, it just, just happened yeah. it just happened his, his style yeah. just changed but in the early to mid 60s he wrote in a very simple just beautifully clear mm. manner and uh, I like I like that more than any of them but I can uh, I can channel most of them. When it comes to what I did and what my dad did in in uh, No Traveler Returns, um, I worked on every page, probably every paragraph, and you know, to a great extent, we work like most writing teams. That I know of. I mean, where both people are living, Um, my dad and I have worked like that on no travel returns because most writing teams, one writer will write a draft and then they give it to the other writer, and that writer will write a draft, and they pass it back and forth until they have it perfected. and And that's indeed what happened. You know what what happened here, and uh, there is. There are probably a couple of peculiarities where you can tell my style, not in a sentence, but in the kind of ideas that go into something. Um, if, uh, if a section of a story has to deal with something that is particularly technical, I have seen that I, t- I tend to get into that kind of stuff, or my dad kind of wrote his way around it. So he didn't he didn't like to get particularly technical about things. Um, in No Traveler Returns, I'm the guy that went and did all of the research to like learn about the flashpoint
0: of the gas is sixty something centigrade or whatever it was. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Right, no, right. You, you have it yeah.
1: you have it precisely. And then I'm also the guy who, who basically would go in and understand exactly what all of the guys on the black gang or the engineering crew in a ship. My dad never did one of those jobs. He was a deck crewman, and um, I I went in and learned a lot about their lives and about the the machinery that they worked with and and things like that to get those details correct. There is a there is a character in the story who was uh, who drove in the Indy five hundred in the early 1920s
0: whose car has a terrible accident right
1: who has a terrible accident and um uh that was my dad's idea but my dad never even had a driver's license okay i mean not ever in his life and so cars were not his specialty which
0: seems that seems outrageous to me here's this grand adventurer and and yet Who drove a Model T apparently at one point out of the desert and then you know hit a pothole? Yeah, poorly, poorly. He he wrecked. Right, and almost died out of out of thirst. But I mean, he never had a driver's license, and that's just that's so fascinating
1: to me. Um, Oh, there are a number of writers like that. He my my dad was Ray
0: Bradbury. That comes to mind.
1: Right. Well, my dad was actually friends with Ray, and one of the reasons they But, but friends or friends of convenience. Well, friends of convenience in that they didn't drive and they would meet. Um, They would they would run into one another at various places in Los Angeles, a bookstore wandering around Beverly Hills or something like that. And then they would spend a good deal of time walking together because they both walked. And occasionally they would stop at a payphone or something and go, "Okay, we got to get home. So they would call a cab. Um, But but yeah, they were kind of guys that I mean, they met professionally a number of times and they met socially a few times but they met accidentally quite often, actually. <laughs>
0: Just because they didn't drive. And right. Was that because he couldn't be bothered with it or he had other important things to do? Or what What was that, you think? What did that come from? Uh,
1: he couldn't afford a car until he was well into his 50s. And uh, I think at that point, he was kind of embarrassed about driving and my mother he got married to my mom very soon after that and she was a very good
0: driver because you know we don't even think about that today i mean the poorest of poor today in america have a car they figured it out you know what i mean and and we don't realize i think some of that is what what you just said is is completely lost on modern culture
1: today my i have a house that was built in 1940 and in what would be the hall closet of that house there is a little annex that was like it had a little it had a little chair in it and a desk and a telephone and that was the phone room for the one phone that it was you was the
0: gossip bench yeah. right
1: it right. was the it right. was the phone room for the one telephone instrument that you were expected to have in a house in 1940 and this is it's not an extravagant house, but it was, you know, is a firmly middle-class home for that for that time period. So, you know, this is a time period where, you know, nobody had two television sets, nobody had two telephones. Um, things were, life was a lot more modest than, than it is today. And so, you know, I'm sure my, my dad was also relatively sure that if he got, a, now some of this may be an excuse, But he was relatively sure that if he got a car, he'd just be out exploring all the time, and he'd never get any work done. And so not having a car was also enforced discipline. Um, But he had my mom. She was very happy to drive him. And then he had me, and I was very happy to drive him. And in reality, what he really needed to do, what every writer needs to do, is put their butt in the chair and type. And so it worked out.
0: Louis L'Amour, the most powerful man in the West. A fitting description. And the best part is, death hasn't even slowed him down. Beau pointed out that every novel and every short story collection he ever wrote is still in print. That alone is a worthy claim for any writer. But L'Amour's legacy runs so much deeper. His creations can be found in the very fabric of the cowboy culture and more importantly, the modern American culture. And that makes Louis L'Amour and Beau L'Amour history worth saving.